Greetings, ladies and managers, and welcome to this latest narration of the web series, There is No Epic Lucha, Only Puns. If you're new to the series, there is a playlist listed down below in the description. And as always, I hope that you enjoy. Chapter 193, Tall Tales. How reliable is this info? A twitchy man asked as he sweated. The duck before them walked off with a small bag of sheathed knives, accepting their tribute. Eh, not super reliable, the smaller man admitted as he fiddled with a stone pedestal on a small island in the lake, connecting only by the thinnest of paths back to the shore. The first man looked at him with a grimace. Don't tell me you went to Grimm's Tales of Woe, he begged, and the smaller man continued to work on the mechanism, switching the ring from noon to sun to dusk. The fake sun in the sky began to sink as the sky turned hues of orange and purples. The dusk settled in. One of their groups pulled on the rented fishing rods, bringing up a floppy disk that turned out to be just a decorated silver sock with glued-on eyes. The member chucked it back with disgust, and it seemed to vanish rather than sink. The, the guild got it from the group that reached the second floor, the Howls of Easter or something. I could only afford some of the puzzle hints. The man worked the pedestal, continued to speak as the rest of them fished. And uh, that was what? Play with unknown dungeon mechanisms and fish in uncharted waters, the first man grunted. No, the smaller one said stiffly. It's said that the path unseen to the second floor can be accessed by either a flash of gold or a dish of silver. He said, and there was a pause as the entire group stared at him. And there's a device here to make a full moon appear. So, we're uncovering both potentials. A golden fish or a full moon could let us skip that cheating first floor boss. It expects perfect teamwork or risking it all to pass, and I think we're smarter than that. The man said as he finally slid the symbols to a full moon image, and a beautiful scene of stars poured across the ceiling in streaks of color. It's breathtaking, someone said, as a massive round moon shimmered into view and reflected on the lake's surface. Someone reeled in another fish, and the horrible stench filled the air as the energetic crimson fish hung off the end of the blunted hook. Gods, toss it back, someone wept, and the moment the fish went underwater, the smell vanished. This place has some unique fish, the tall man, the leader of the little group, muttered. The lake surface shifted as a single large ripple spread across the lake. The leader was distracted as another group seemed to be heading down their way. It was the scouts, searching for another path, and by the way, they were arguing about the demon mouse. It seemed that they hadn't discovered anything. That wasn't good. No one, no other adventuring group or fair play folks had mentioned this in any of the bars or shared spaces, but there was a drumming in the walls, a deep primal thundering of distant drums that never stopped. The leader had hoped that they would find out where it was coming from. The room suddenly darkened, and they all stared up as the moon seemed to vanish at both ends by the shadows of a massive moor. What in the abyss? Someone said as the lake suddenly heaved as something rose up. The scouts rounded the corner and entered the lake room, as a full moon reappeared from behind the dark cloud. They came to a dead stop and stared as instead of seeing their party making progress and discovering the secrets of the dungeon, there was only a single abandoned fishing rod rattling to a stop on the island in the middle of the lake. No one from the main group could be seen. It wasn't until they left the dungeon, stopping to look for their names on that creepy memorial wall on that way out, they returned to town and were drinking at the bar when their missing group members showed up a few hours later. Two of them looked feral with skull helmets and their smart guy was decked out with a feathered coat and craving food of other guests in the bar. That was when the tale began to spread. If you conjure the full moon on a still lake, a gateway to the underworld will appear. 
Enter the fleshy fields of combat and choose angels or demons. Play in their war to earn passage, fail, and be washed away. Thus is the tale of the King of the Skies and the Emperor of the Shadows. Fishing rods can be rented from Grimm's Tales and Woes Guildhall for a reasonable price. Bait sold separately. It's coming, someone cried as the moon began to vanish and the mass of catfish arose. Its mouth glowing from the swallowing moonlight. It looked smooth-skinned rather than scaled with two long dragon-like whiskers, coming off its face with deep, unfathomable eyes. Staghorns charge, their leader cried, and they all leapt as one into the mass of catfishes more, while sending up prayers. In another mirror for all one, We've been fishing here for three hours. Where is the stamped fish? A woman scowled as she held up a massive spear under the full moon. All the group had caught was a silver sleek fish, and now a flapping golden fish. It was rumored that not every instance activates at the same mechanics. It's like the dungeon wants to be unpredictable, one of her men muttered, as he held a silver and gold fish close together, with a baffled expression. Captain, these fish, he said, and she shot him a sharp look, knowing he must have noticed something. They have the shape of keys in their bodies, he said, holding them up so they reflected the moonlight. The moment he did, the two fish began to glow. Their shape shifted, and the middle of the lake, beyond the island, began to swirl with a whirlpool, pushing water aside as it laid the lake bed exposed to the moonlight. In the sand surrounded by rocks and plants was a tunnel rapidly emptying of water that soon began to emit the scent of flowers followed by the sounds of a waterfall. We, we, we discovered another path, someone cried as they raced over and began to set up a rope to lower themselves into the tunnel. Time to see if it tries to flood and kill us, the woman muttered as she followed her group. On days with the great fish slumbers, two stars come out to play. A silver and gold fish that dance like moonlight, catching them, is a feat of patience and pride. It is also a secret. The lake can offer many paths. The question is, do you have the keys? Grim Guild sells rope and sensible shoes for traversing rocky tunnels, sold as a bundle with fishing rods for a fair price. If a fisher can bring back a key as a loot drop, Grim's Guild will nail it to a park with your name on it for free. I feel stupid, a bald-headed woman sighed as the other two in a group listened to the regal-looking mushroom man instruct them on how to weave their pots together, with dreams and honor. Less talking and more passion, her comrade chided as he made a lovely flower pot. Soon all three of them had basic but usable pots. They were nice, and maybe she would send it back to her mother back home. Her mum enjoyed fresh flowers and pots. The friendly mushroom walked off and the woman sighed using her new pot to collect water from the lake to boil. She blinked as a splash of gold leapt into a pot with almost celebration, and swam happily in the water with its key-shaped marker clear on its side. Quickly, the group tried to use their other pots to lure the silverfish, but it seemed uninterested in their vase-like pots. The bald woman quickly got to work and made something that could have been an earthen basin, or a massive pan made out of mud and water, using the techniques from the regal mushroom. The silverfish had drawn to the pan like a fish to a frying pan. The tail of the lake grew. The wise mushroom man could teach people to make alluring arts. The woman really did end up sending a vase back home. She crudely carved a key inside a heart on it. In the meaning was lost on her mother, but was still dearly beloved by the woman. A tankard of ale slammed down as the goblin boss and a bear of a man tried to outdrink each other in the goblin bar. It was quickly becoming a hangout spot for the more experienced adventurers who can handle the constant pressure of the floor's manor. It turned out that if you just asked to go to the bar, the dungeon didn't take them off into groups and sent an escort. 
If I win, you will need to come back and give me a proper challenge. But what do you want? Bran slurred as Bacon let out a noxious fart that the bartender fanned away grumpily. Your helmet, another one of the men said quickly, sticking to soda. Bran seemed amused and accepted, but despite his strength, his power to hold his drink was not actually that great. The helmet was won and the adventurers returned the next day to beat Fran, barely, and moved through to the second floor, where they found the keys needed to reach the point where very few adventurers ever passed. The second floor bathroom was filled with the mist and just as the shadow of the tree of pain formed, they held up Fran's helmet and offering. Even after a day, Bran's musky scent was still coming off of it, indicating that it was given, not dropped as a loot item. Is that, the tree woman said slowly, the helmet of Sir Fran earned in a friendly match, the leader said, and the tree swooped down, all smiles and dimples. And you would give me this treasure, she purred. We would even regale you with the tale of our battle, how Sir Fran charged into the arena like a hero, and what he said, the slimmer boy said, adding to the deal. The tree took the helmet and let out a sound like a demonic chortle. Tell me, tell me of the rippling muscles of my knight. Spare no details. I want to hear about every drop of sweat, every time he broke your bones and crushed your dreams. Then... You may pass, she ordered, and hugged the helmet to her chest. Thus the detail spread. On the second floor, a demon of pain and cruelty can be harrowing to fight, but like all curses, the tale of true love can break it. Bring this tree an offering of the knight upon his mighty swine, and you may have a chance to pass her wicked thorns. Be warned that if your tale does not contain copious amounts of flexing, you may lack content to pass. Grim's Guild sells artist renditions of Cern Fran along with actual mugs he's strung from. This costs a fortune to buy. These increase your chance of not getting splinters in unsightly places. Bed-length cushions for the body are in development. We're ready, the members of the healer-only group cried as they charged into the third floor boss room with their staves raised. As a group, they were treated like a joke since they struggled to clear dungeons, but this dungeon was allowing them to fulfill their dreams of a healer-only runner. The Healies had challenged Fran, finding him hard but not crushing. Why am the demon of pain just choked in laughter until she passed out? Which they took as a win. They did cast healing magic on her in case she had hurt her throat before they left. We are prepared to lose, but we'll avoid it as best we can, Daffodil Blue said, as she was backed up by Starchild, Warm Duvet, and their newest member, Skullcracker. They were still working on the Orc's healer name. It was like a fun healer name to take the burden off people screaming for them to do their jobs and heal them from their thoroughly avoidable damage. The massive throne room was empty except for a small bubbling creature moving across the floor under a skull. They gathered around it and the little guy bubbled up at them with a wave of a tendril made from its body. Ah, you're adorable. Yeah, I brought a magic talisman to help strangers, Davidal Blue said, and put a sticker of Happy Cat with words perfect under it on the forehead of the little guy. I know crush your skull. I salute your warrior passion and will be king of this realm, Skull Crusher raged, then settled down. That's the spell. Inspiring word, someone praised, and all the Healies applauded for Skull Crusher, who looked shyly down at their feet. Isn't that a bad thing? Starchild wondered. It heals emotions. We can claim it, someone else argued. At their feet, the little slime glowed and put a coin in each of their pockets without their notice. 
On the third floor, people seem to keep being defeated by different things. The tale is hard to pin down as it could be harmless slime or a dragon of eldritch nightmares. So far, only healers have had any chance and we've now seen an uptick of class changes. The healthcare system is booming. Grimm's Guild does not offer insurance for adventurers and that a lot of you are risky and idiotic. If the owner wished to throw his money away, he would at least throw his coins at people he didn't like. The inside of the Beast of the Lake was a mess of racks and ruin. The fearful bird with a weird crown screamed at the two adventurers as the smaller demure seagull spoke in common. The king would be willing to allow you to keep your eyes if you serve in the war of ours. Your rewards will be grand, the little black seagull said wisely. The two adventurers shared a look. Like, uh, uh, what kind of treasure? One asked. The king gestured to a plate covered in half-chewed chicken bones. Another reward was a heap of ruined plants. The rewards went on in this vein with food, a massive nest, broken eggshells, blood-covered weapons of those who had decided to attack rather than serve, and a dozen leftover boots. The heavenly treasure of our kind, the seagull proclaimed. Uh, what about those? The adventurer pointed to a pile of gleaming gems and jeweled and crushed vases. You want... Those, the translator spoke for the king, conveying his weird and out tone. Yes, they said eagerly. King Trash Lover stared at his airless primate, stanced and hoarded the shiny rocks that would do nothing for them. Not protective feathers or food that could heal wounds or boots that could increase their speed. The king waved one wing. A strange people would have their shiny rocks. They would serve for their pretty pebbles. Down in the depths, the two other adventurers, who'd been separated in the transition from the lake room, sat around a blue bonfire as his hidden base moved with dozens of armored formations. You are anointed. Your soft skins and thumbs are gifts of the goddess. You arrived here by great providence. That pale white isopod spoke for the menacing emperor above. We paint you in sludge on the ground. We mark you with the rusts of the vessels. And we grant you the symbol of power. The little guy chittered as two large creatures placed a piece of pleon, a segment of their armor atop their head like crowns. You are now bottom feeders. You are now squiggly polies of the shadows. You are evolved. The translator cried, and the base was full with chittering. But, uh, we get the chest of gold, right? One spoke. A box of metal that tastes bad. Yes, that is yours, the Empress said, and was translated with amusement. After all, the two had rejected the sludge piles, the fetching seaweed togas, and the wretched armor of those who refused to serve, and the massive pile of boots that would only go on their right feet. With excitement, they were given their tasks and sent out to a central platform, where they stared in shock as their teammates emerged down the ramp covered in crease and feathers. Um, the bird had jewels, one said embarrassed. Uh, the bugs have gold, the other side muttered. Fight! The translators cried and threw weapons on the platform. Confused, each adventurer picked up a pole with rounded ends that was made of a strange padded material. The bird warriors had white clubs and the isopods had black. What are these going to... Ow! One of them said as the black club hit him in the chest and knocked him back a few feet. That's for snoring all night, the attacker said with a grin. The smile was wiped off as he was hit in the face and landed on his rear. I would hit you for some coin, friend. So a whole bunch of jewels. I could go all night, his teammate beamed. I have no reason. I just like hitting people. The second isopod warrior cried and charged. 
the paramercenaries and the seagulf warriors let out the cries of their people as the battle went under. This was only the first round. Next up was the obstacle course and then the seaweed ball race. Wyam stared at a haggard adventurers. We laid offerings at your groves and humbly asked you to let us pass, they said, and Wyam reached out, finding a little bit of desperation and belief in her new groves. It was nice that she could only nod in surprise. It begs belief that you are actually found them all, she said in utter surprise. Will you be soft? a man asked, looking hopeful, if a bit delirious. Does your mini-map look like a hundred hours of pointless markers? she asked huffily. Not even sure why Dalta's memories made that image pop up. No, someone said. Then scram before I change the genre to Shalsburn, she's warned, and the group rushed past in panic. She was cute, Wyam heard one of them mutter. You're courting death if you go after her, was the response. Now that made her heart flutter. The tale spread. End of chapter. Chapter 194. It's not all doom and gloom. What is that? Someone asked as the latest group left the unpredictable dungeon. Staring at the bottle in the leader's hand, the adventurer hiccuped. Your mama, he giggled. There was some scuffling before Rudy reached over and took the bottle like a toy from an argumentative children. She eyed the reddish bottle with a decorative crab legs. Coconut crab tastes good and it's not alcoholic. Crabs support you not drinking, Rudy read, and the group let Rudy keep it, as they had about twenty other bottles. She popped the unopened lid and sipped it, feeling the urge to find a nice beach and sway. Maybe even click her fingers. Wait, uh... If this is non-alcoholic, how is he drunk? Rudy asked as she continued her guard over Dalta's dungeon. His teammates looked embarrassed. Uh, he can't read, one of them whispered. Rudy's mouth opened, then closed before she shook her head. Takes all types, she said, before Alpha emerged next, and almost every adventuring group parted before him. The kid seemed to scare the big, tough adventurers due to his aura of utter disinterest, if they existed or not. Gripping him tightly by the shoulder was the most attractive goblin Rudy had ever seen. She was sure that it was a goblin, because he was handsome, and orcs had more of a rugged thing going on. The goblin was all sort of familiar. Where is the ceiling? The goblin asked, looking mildly disturbed by the expansive open sky. There is no ceiling out here, unless you're being suppressed at a job by an older man. Then it's a glass ceiling, Alpha said with a neutral tone. I would not be suppressed by no man, the handsome goblin challenged the open sky. I agree with that, Rudy spoke up, and the goblin beamed at her with a perfect smile. And she had a sudden flash of a much smaller form, with a thicker skull with that same smile. Numb, she asked in shock, and the goblin nodded, looking pleased Rudy recognized her. Is this, uh, is this dungeon becoming an abomination? Someone asked in a serious tone. Rudy's spine tingled with a cold feeling, and the relaxed mood in the open meadow turned tense. No, I simply have the ability to tame monsters for a short while, Alpha spoke up briskly, and he looked very serious as he gazed into angry glances. I am training it so that I can, um, he frowned and looked around for how to continue. He's going to be a leader and challenge the yearly Beast Violet League, Rudy interrupted, remembering the tournament held on the left foot, too close to where Everland existed in its strange pocket dimension. Instantly, the mood became jovial again, and people spoke about the tournament and how many people would bring rats only to see someone bring a dragon. Alpha, Rudy whispered, trying not to look worried, because Numb should really not be here. She would never call Dalta an abomination, but she would need to know how hard she needed to cover up and make a few suspicious people vanish. I had the power to mimic Dungeon Manor, 
He can only be out here as long as he's in contact with me. Alpha assured her with a small smile, and it was really good news. Rudy took a moment to exhale the nod. She eyed Numb, who was just standing there, but she could swear that there was an aura around him extending into the world. What happened to him? Rudy asked, more curious now. Delta called it himbofication, Alpha reported. Rudy was about to ask what that even meant when she left a tickle in the air. A white dove landed nearby as it looked exhausted and then passed out, dropping a scroll into Numb's open hand. He eyed it curiously. Royal wedding invite, dear reader, this is my last chance to escape the evil advisor I am engaged to. I set the stuff free to find my one true lo- Numb read, and Alpha took the thing and set fire to it with a silent spell. Delta said Numb is not to read any letters, talk to any old men, or go towards any caves or tombs, and especially lakes with potential women in them, Alpha explained, without any hint that he found its strange quest. Oh, is that all? Nothing else? Rudy asked sarcastically. A magic circle appeared under Numb for a moment, with a faint girl's voice calling for a hero of another world to aid them, but Alpha stepped on the circle and smudged it out of existence. Ah, a few other things, Alpha admitted. I've seen heroic auras, but this is far too powerful for your run-of-the-mill hero, Rudy said, as she watched the sun catch on Numb's face, making him look good and pure. It's a mix of Delta's, uh, Deltaness and my own reluctance to answer the call, Alpha said, and looked at Numb with some shame, but the goblin simply patted his head. I don't mind, he said. He said, as if he had to say this a lot already. Four girls walked out of the tree line, looking both lost and utterly confident in their location. One was a scowling girl with glaring at everything. Another tripped over thin air. The next was stuttering so bad despite talking to no one. And the last was an elven princess of sorts who glowed with the power and talked to everyone and anyone about her village dying due to the lack of men. Alpha, how strong is this aura exactly? Rudy asked slowly, reaching for a sword. When it was down to me, I tempered it with by being so indifferent that they just wandered off. When one refused to leave, I put them on mute and ignored them, Alpha said bluntly, pushing Numb back towards the dungeon entrance. Numb wants to be social, Alpha added, and that explained a lot. Mute them, Rudy asked as an angry-looking girl, followed by a groom of all people, protested that she couldn't seem to stop her feet moving towards the dungeon. Alpha looked at one of the strange girls that appeared, hitting any and all men as she came across being for being perverts. Instantly, a red cross appeared above her head and her voice vanished. It's supposed to stop magic users, but I found a better use, Alpha said simply, and walked back inside with Numb, who waved at everyone. Damn, really wanted that spell when Quiz started going off about brute women, broken staves, and bruised wizard orbs. That man could complain so much over drinks. Do you have something to make all of this go away? Rudy asked, wondering if she was about to be dumped on clean-up duty. Alpha answered her by returning with a very different goblin. Two of them, actually. The sky! What a waste of space! Swar screamed and waved his staff around, setting fire to patches of grass. The other goblin made Rudy's skin crawl as everyone stared at him. He lowered his scarf, revealing his evil mouth while wiggling his fingers in greeting. Hi! He stressed out like a curse word. Rudy didn't like that smile, but she couldn't argue that it made any romantic feelings with her faster than a sober advocate before Quiss. Oh, that's fantastic, a weird girl said as Grimm looked pale at the sight of the goblins that tormented him so long ago. Rudy would have paid to see that dungeon run personally. Maybe she could talk Delta into building some sort of memory theater? Rudy had no idea if a memory theater was a thing, but she would bet gold on Delta making one happen. 
She would hold off on asking because Delta had a plan and Rudy didn't want to rush things. Spin the wheels of choice, I'm no longer going to hell. Spin the wheel, Delta chanted as the wheel made her manner spun so fast. Sparks flew off in the air. It slowed down to show the point of landing on finishing floor four. The other options consisted of improving the fish geon a little more, creating a secondary path to the third floor from the second, creating more challenges on the third floor, and the last section was simply filled with the words Frog Zord. No, thank the sister. New sagged and Delta would honor the wheel. We could finish the Zodiac Islands. None of anyone has gotten past Jelligan. Even the Heelys turned back because the manor was so thick it made them feel lightheaded, Delta mused. It is a simple stopgap. Eventually people will adapt. It's like pressure training, New warned, and Delta could see that. It bought her time to get the basics into place and hope for the best. To think she could maybe even develop her fifth floor in a short while. New seemed to urge her past the third floor with an odd nervousness before they reappeared back on the fourth floor. Instantly, a small form emerged from the waters and curled around Delta's shoulders with a lazy slump. Hello, Ophiuchus, Delta said with a smile as she petted the snake's head. The critter looked a little bigger than before, and his eyes were beginning to look the same shape as the orbs of the Zodiac Islands. I enjoy not doing any work here. I am going to relax, New said, and his screen flickered being replaced by a green color, indicating a reluctant Prim. Hey, Prim, Delta greeted the primal menu. Dungeon core, Delta, Prim responded as new screen floated near Crab Island with a little care. Ready for work, she asked, and Prim brought up the map with the fourth floor. According to the order of creation, the next island would be the squat goblin with a cannon on its shoulder. No, wait, it's, Prim said, all business. First, it's an elegant woman or man holding a vase that is pouring water, Delta said remaining serene and calm. I thought they were shooting napalm. I was looking forward to this island, Prim said, sounding heartbroken. Second, Delta decided to just not address Prim's words. It's the Waterbearer Island, she explained and dropped until she stepped on the empty island. She focused, creating a massive statue with the help of Prim, a cracked and old statue of an unidentified person holding a vase that seemed to contain a void of darkness within, rose up from the ground with vines and moss growing on it. Delta was feeling Greek today, so created more stone pillars that she laid on the sides to mimic collapsing structures, along with the bird bars and a mess of walls. The entire island was a complete wreck, but also chaotically interesting. Water bearer. So we should create water elementals that would drown those who tread here, or perhaps the water can be boiling, Prom offered, trying to be a part of the process. Love and energy, Delta praised while mentally discarding those ideas. She placed a deep lavender color orb inside the vase. Something in her mind twitched because Sheep Island had a red orb and it felt like there should be a shade between them, but she was also sure the water bearer should be a lavender. Next, she considered the types of people that this island represented and smiled. In seconds, the entire island was filled with a dozen holes that led deep into the island. Death holes, finally, something I can get behind, Brim said eagerly, until she noticed that they were only the size of a frying pan barely able to make someone sink into them. Humming in delight as Ophiuchus tastes the air in curiosity, Delta opened her menu and watched the system and Prim catch on to her desires and the possibilities form. Water Cannon Island. Water is healthy. This much water is less so. Water Bearer Orb. Upgrade automatically integrated into island formation. Dark Dank Hole. Adventurers cannot simply reach into the statue's hole and expect results. If the vase gushes water, the orb will become dislodged. Otherwise, cannot be physically felt. 20 DP. 
water island. Across the island, dozens of holes gushed streams of water. They all seemed connected to the statue's vase, and by blocking one hole, a little bit of water begins to leak. Blocking them all causes a deluge. 30 dp. Gopher flowing. Water-loving gophers live in the holes and don't take kindly to having their holes messed with. If the holes aren't covered fast enough, these little creatures unplug them. 30 dp. Natural order. If the gophers are removed or destroyed, the island begins to change. The more that are destroyed and gone, the more likely the water bearer's face begins to pour out gopher gone, a slime with massive teeth. The flow does not stop. 40 dp. Pat a hole. Once in a while, a gopher will emerge to laugh. Patting ten in a row will cause the orb to dislodge. Also, you win cow points to spend on cow island. 20 dp. Water bear. If you cheat the batter hole, the statue becomes a bear made of seething water that'll chase the cheaters. 40 dp. Downton clicked on one with a serious nod. All of these are important, she insisted. If they're all important, then none of them are, Prim argued. Or if nothing matters, then everything is great, Delta said with a sagely nod. Does being positive all the time make existence more enjoyable? Prim asked after a moment, as little brown balls of fur with big teeth erupted from the ground on watery geysers chittering happily with one another as they played in the spray of water and rainbow mists. Hmm. It's not because I'm positive that things are better. It's because I try to be always be better, so I end up feeling positive, she tried to explain. So the production of work and progress allows you to feel at peace with your existence? Brim pressed, almost demanding an answer. Delta thought about it. Work was nice, but with work she could make bars and pools with fish so Dio and Rudy could visit. When they visited, Delta felt like she had friends outside of a dungeon, and the connection made her want to please those people and her creations, which often developed into her creating rare rooms, drinks, and delicious foods. Unless it was a troll soup, then it was more than she was just happy for Jeb to enjoy his food. I'm happy as long as I don't eat troll soup, was Delta's final answer. Prim seemed lost, so Delta just smiled at her. So find a hobby, something that appeals to you, Delta said as she was soon surrounded by gophers and happiness welled up inside her. Murder. That's not an acceptable hobby in society, Delta responded without looking. Extreme maiming. Less bad than murder. Still bad, Delta said. Mental anguish. Why am ready hounds that, Delta continued, lining up her gophers so that she could pet them in an organized manner and efficiently. May I browse your memories for an acceptable hobbies? Rome asked, sounding actually fed up with the choices being shot down. Go for it, Delta offered. The idea far less intrusive than it was when she first became a dungeon. Sharing information with her system, which just felt more normal now. She then felt a small existence that was Prim flowing over her head. It was so easy to reach out and damage Prim because she was so new, undefined in her existence. New was like a tangle of barbed wire that burned all his thorns away when she approached, but Prim was closer to air. I found her hobby, Prim declared proudly. Delta shivered as it felt like Prim was using a tiny bit of her thinking space to place a system folder which unpacked itself. The thing was deep in the menus and Delta only knew Prim was interfacing with it because of five folders out. Delta could hear the music. Wait, Delta knew that music. This takes up surprisingly little space, Prim praised as she lost herself in the game. What are you running that on? Delta asked in alarm. You! Oh. If you can't have real violence, you're going to settle with virtual violence, Delta asked as she moved over to the next island. Most life is a simulation created by ambient energies of brother and sister and the lost one. Oh, I can reset at any time. These beings cannot ever escape my wrath. Rim laughed with a dark tone. Use the shotgun, Delta offered with a bemused tone. 
There's weapons other than my meat clubs. As Dalta touched down on Fish Island, Prum shyly spoke up. I will finish this run with my meat clubs. I have grown fond of their ability to perform violence. The system said and went quiet. Dalta was now left utterly alone to do the making and creation. I can do this. I can make art and beauty, she said with a proud nod. She rubbed her hands together to make a manor gather. New floated in the water, working on a signed blueprint number 2477. This one said something along the lines of don't burn books or the books will burn you for the third floor. Sign making was soothing. Telling people what to do without actually talking to them was a thrill. He felt Delta trying to do solo work and frowned. He searched and found piercing death rattle of a sound and screeching following by Prim's delighted laugh. Return to the Umbiscan clean ones, she giggled as she had a massive technocolic screen playing ultra-violent scenes of creatures being punched to bloody puddles. Aren't you supposed to be doing something, he loomed, usually finding his looming mate Prim behave. Prim shot him an annoyed look, then punched him in the side. Mew was so taken back that he didn't stop himself from floating out of Prim's space, where she slammed the metaphorical door in his face. Do not make me come in there and remove that thing from Delta's system. I have stronger permissions than you, Mew warned. I didn't ask to be born, Mew, Prim called over the noises. Hmm. Mew would have to tackle this a different way. Prum was but a child, really. Thankfully, training the Trinity Dungeon had prepared New for this. You know, since I have most of Delta's public memories, I could tell you there's a sequel to your little game, improved in many ways, New said casually, leaning on the symbolic wall of Prum's space. I can wait. I actually finished my projects, Prum said back without much care. New couldn't be saddled with Delta when she was making so many insane islands. What do you want? Name it, he said through the door, hiding his desperation. That was when Prim finally emerged, looking more solid than before, less like thin air and more like a thin shell of light. We suffered together. Delta is too much for either of us alone. If she feels outnumbered, we can convince her of many things, Prim said, and Nu could see the logic in that. But I don't want her to feel miserable when working. That'll put her off, he countered. We must only remove the most inane and weakest of changes. A little nip there and a tuck here, then we shall be providing the dungeon with the BFG of threats. Prim nodded. Unless she really wants them, you said, and Prim nodded slowly. I do not object to Delta's fondness for odd choices. I just wish for more input, Prim admitted, and you knew that feeling far too well. Go back to your game. I shall handle the next island, New said gravely. I must complete the 65th run with the handgun. I set the challenge that I can only move backwards to progress and disable all forward motions. It makes it more fun, Prim explained and vanished in a cloud of joy. You can shoot demons all day, but you still won't handle Delta, New snorted. Demons can be shot. Delta's ideas are eternal, Brum shouted back. Touche. End of chapter. Chapter 195. Tax Evasion Plus Two. This can't possibly be that upsetting, New said, and Delta stubbornly refused to look at him as Prim surveyed what was left of the island. I don't know if mana vibrated. It exploded, she said with a mutter. Vibration energy, continuous energy, must be put to use. Rapid vibration with no output produces a... Say it, New said with an annoying sing-song tone. Delta refused and glared at the scorched black earth. I'm deeply impressed. I shall record mana bombs for possible traps or, if nothing else, mods for my game. Prim praised, and somehow that only made Delta feel even more embarrassed. Remind me to get Prim into farm simulator games, Delta told New, and the blue screen hesitated. 
She already murdered the Star Sap Gorge to allow her to murder those that try and romance her avatar. She uses their empty homes as more chicken coops, he explained, and Dalta stared at him. Why chickens? Aren't there a lot of other things? Dalta asked, tilting her head. Chicken only run. It's where I kill the village every time one of my chickens produce a golden egg, Brom interrupted, as the land around them slowly began to heal and become slightly less decimated. But if you've been keep building more chickens, doesn't that mean statistically that you're going to get more golden eggs? Delta pointed out, and Prim made a strange sound that was almost pleased. Numbers go up, she hissed. I tried to bond with her and make signs for her town, but she murdered my avatar and used my bones for a chicken coop, New said dryly, as the island slowly returned to a more normal appearance with the aid of the two systems. Your signs were creating disharmony in my town. It made me feel unpleasant, Prim argued as Delta watched them interact, mildly bittersweet, as she watched the once robotic beings argue like real siblings. It was strange how much things changed when Delta wasn't looking. Delta clapped her hands as she was about to get ready to correct a mistake. Fish Island should have come before Waterbearer Island, but Delta's excitement in the act of creating had made her forget the proper order. Forgive me, people of the fish, Delta sent a silent apology to the stars. Wait, New said, and Delta looked at his screen and blinked, hands still raised in the air. We have uh, formed a union and wish to have a bigger stake in the dungeon, Prom added quickly. Delta looked between the blue and green screen. But I don't pay you. How can I pay you more? She asked and then sucked in air. Oh my god, I don't pay you. I'll set up a compensation buddy account. Give me a moment. Delta turned, reaching for New, but let out a shock at Yelp as New yanked her back. We don't want useless currency, he said quickly as Prim picked around his side. Unless I can purchase firearms for my private use, she said, but New shot her a look that made her sulk away. We just want some of our ideas to be used instead of discarded, New explained and Delta smiled weakly. Your ideas are a bit murdery, she reminded him. The two screens shared a look, communicating silently. Delta could listen in, but she wanted to give them the respect of their own space. We promise to tone it back if you try to work with us, New offered, and Delta smiled. I can do that. I don't hate your ideas. As a whole, they can be very clever, Delta said and crossed her arms, as the idea of cooperation was always appealing to her. Sharks with lasers should be the theme of this island, Brum said instantly. Tone, New muttered. Uh, Cut fish with handguns? Delta decided to throw them a lifeline. So you want some sort of fish creature with projectiles to be a hindrance to people? She asked and Prim began to vibrate as small explosions flowed over his screen. New looked over at the mostly green island. The edges refused to change from their charred blackness, much to Delta's dismay, and spoke slowly. We can wait until you set up the core orb challenge, he said, and Delta looked at Prim, who seemed to agree. Delta thought about the strengths and weaknesses of this island, allowing an idea to come to her along with a smile. I have an idea, she grinned. Grim didn't think being employed would be so dull. The following sponsors would like to set up around the guild hall in return for monthly rent fees to the guildmaster. He read off a piece of paper in his office. Paperwork seemed to be growing by the day. Mouth chompers, white tear teeth, pot insurance, protect your curves, living the lich life, insurance for your undeath. Ah! Grim threw it aside and then pushed the whole pile of similar requests off his table. Elegant, Soma said as she sipped on tea in the corner of her entourage and Dio. Why are you here? Grim asked darkly. Your building is the closest to the dungeon and you have over a dozen rooms unused, which I can use as free rooms. 
Whoever built this place says a truly a master craftsman, Selma praised, as she ran her hand over the nearby fireplace, which had images of Dear's mother carved into them like a divine being. Every room had some sort of monument to the woman, and thankfully they were all modest figures of love. So, uh, you're freeloading, Grimm summed up. You ignore my freeloading, and when I become queen, I'll forgive the freeloading you're doing on taxes by being underage but still owning a business, Soma offered with a sweet smile. You can use the cramped closet in the basement. I put some old swords I got as collateral from some adventurers who took my floor one package but ignored my warnings, Grimm said as he stood up and looked around the paper-covered floor for something. No need, I found this darling little room with the heroic action figures and maps on the wall, she said, and Grimm nearly choked. That, that's my room, he said, and Soma met his eyes. Grimm was willing to perform some regicide. No one took his action figures. In anger, he reached down, he took a rather thick stack of papers and inhaled them like candy, causing Soma to sit up in alarm. Grimm grinned as he made another threatening gesture to inhale more kingdom paperwork when he paused. Did you know the code to reform your father's reign says that you technically have no power until you're 18, he said, and looked down at the paperwork in shock. Yes, I am rather aware of my rights being taken away by the many laws my father made, Soma said in a tight tone. Tea! Leo asked as he poured more tea for everyone. Grimm ignored her as he got on his knees, beginning to inhale the paper around him with a mad gleam in his eyes. Laws, reforms, technicality, tax codes, area codes, rules, regulations, limits, grey areas. Grimm shuddered as he digested it all. I know tax exemptions, he said, slowly looking at Soma, who put a cup down with an odd expression. Show me, she beckoned. Moments later, Grimm was walking down the stairs and opened the front door to the Grimm Tail Guildhouse, where a dozen people suddenly began to demand entry or more secrets on how to get past this or that. Grimm nudged Dio, who whistled, making people cover their ears in pain, which is a blessed silence followed. Now, I know I haven't been doing things as clean as a whistle, Grimm said, and almost winced at his own wording, but powered on. I have learned much, and I want to say things are going to be get a lot better from here on out, Grimm promised. Many adventurers poked up while Fair Place officers smiled, as if they were waiting for this. For me. Things are going to get better. For me, Grimm's tone said with an air of utter greed. He began to recite codes and laws that particularly lent themselves to dungeons and adventurers. It turned out that adventurers were a bit of a liability for any town or city in the long enough duration due to the habit of things that required peacekeepers around. Testing magical items on private property, setting hedges alight with some new amulet, messing up a new spell they learned and blowing up the local orphanage, accidentally animating an ex-residence of the orphanage into underage and unalive warriors, and so on. Heck, Grimm was even learning as he spoke that adventurers were banned in some places due to being menaces and dangers to society. Under the Jai law of the capital city, Grimm could brand any of these oaths as devils or menaces, which could carry a fine of a whole silver or private property if they were poor. Grimm chewed on another piece of paper with amusement, getting odd looks. As for private companies like Fairplay, they had to adhere to the rules even more so due to the fact that they had government-granted grounds and agreements. Entry to the guild is now five copper, Grimm added, placing a bucket down by the door. Someone let out a sudden bellow of rage and leapt out of the crowd, a near-naked warrior who seemed to have lost all of his equipment somehow. Grimm thought he looked familiar, but these saps sort of began to blend together after three days. The knife he brandished made Grimm alarmed for a second, but Dio slapped the attacker's hand down like a swatted fly, and he crashed into the steps. 
the wood undamaged despite the force of the slam. Grim, they love the rules. He couldn't wait to pay, Dio said brightly as he held out the bucket to the sobbing man. The clink of coins was music to Grim's ears. He turned to Soma and her guard, Mass. Soma looked mildly impressed. I suppose the room with the ensuite bathroom, an actual view from the balcony, would do for me, she shrugged. Grim knew that he'd win over her. Wait, what room? Grim hadn't explored all the floors yet. There was a room like that. It was rather scary that Dio's father had installed indoor plumbing and hooked it all up to the sewers in a short few days. Still, despite that, the adventurers in Fairplay were still advancing to the guild with coins held out, and Grim wilted at the idea of talking to them. If only he had someone who liked people who wouldn't steal from Grimm to undercut the guild. Should I get the entrance bucket ready? Dio asked happily, and Grimm waved him off. Dio, not now. I'm trying to think of a schmuck that I can rip off for free labor, he said with annoyance. I can work, Dio said, sounding confidence. Dio, you still have 10 essays due for Mr. Jones. You're not allowed to have a hobby, let alone a job, Grimm said, and Dio looked put out then smiled as the people began to tip him an extra copper upon entry. We have homework, Dio asked after a moment, looking thoughtful. Grim was about to sign when he saw someone approaching. It was Quiss, but Grim didn't care about the blonde man, as he tended to ignore any problems, unless it was suddenly his problem. No, Grim knew that wherever Quiss went, he scanned the tree line and found the outplaced bush with an odd team trying to blend in down the road from Quiss, inching forward shyly. I do believe I found my vastly superior option, Grim said with delight, then frowned at himself. Name puns now. Can I hold the entrance bucket if I do my homework? Dio asked while prodded Grim's side curiously. Sure, Grim agreed, seeing there was no chance in the stars or the abyss that Dio would ever do all his homework. Now, he had a bark up the right tree. From above the circular island looked like two circling fish that gave a little space in the center for a small pond. In the pond, a little shadowy shape circled the water as Ophiuchus watched it with open curiosity. It's not exactly a shark, Prim said slowly. Delta admitted that it wasn't a shark, but this was as close as you could mutate a fish into one. Guitar fish, a shark on a budget. It's more of a ray, a sort of diverse skate species. This one has very shark-like dorsal fins. New encouraged Prim, who perked up. It's like an Easter egg, she exclaimed. Dalta focused on the fish, and seconds later, it swallowed a deep pink orb that made its stomach glow. With a nod, she borrowed some food from Ferris' kitchen and tossed it into the pond as she began to talk with the two screens. Fish Island is going to focus on kindness with compassion and demanding sympathy to the point of being a victim. Overindulgence in anyone is going to be a bad thing, she said, as she weaved a few bushes of berries that grew on the first floor along with some of the actual edible mushrooms that she had developed. Delta made a mental note to get back to the secret garden and mushroom grove later, along with the checking on the flower garden on the second floor. Those rooms could not be left alone for too long. The, the fish will kill them with kindness. Prim guessed as guitar fish emerged and spat water around before splashing water about messily. No, to get the orb, I'm going to set it up so that they need to feed the fish the right food, ignoring the easy fattening food and stopping before it gets too big. The fish will beg for junk food, but it grows too large. It'll swallow the orb and then escape into the ocean around the island, Delta said, and looked at the two screens, awaiting their response. I suspect some food will have an interesting reaction for the fish. New asked, and Delta could feel him imagining an innocent bowl of troll soup being laid nearby for someone to find. 
Delta just grinned as she opened the menu to reveal a set of upgrades, courtesy of Prim sorting them. Fish Island. You're in the barrel, not the fish. An island set to test the rationale and self-control of adventurers by giving them tasks of looking after something other than themselves. Cursed Orb. If the fish is killed and the orb retrieved, those adventurers will automatically ascend to threat level 1. Cost 50 mana. Mushroom Buffet. The following mushrooms will grow. Cost 10 DP. Lava Shroom. If fed to the fish, causes it to belch light fire and eye-searing spice. Frost Shroom. If fed to the fish, causes it to belch snow and freeze the surface of the pond, forcing the adventurers to remove it and feed the fish more. Star Shroom. If fed to the fish, causes it to glow majestically and feel happy. Troll Soup. A bowl of troll soup sometimes appears to be offered to the fish. If fed to the fish, it'll become enraged and slap one or two of the adventurers before returning to its pond. It'll feel like being slapped by a troll. 30 DP. Nutritious berries. A small but nice meal. The fish rarely only eat so many before ignoring more. 5 DP. Honey from the bees. An assortment of honeys can be offered. 20 DP. Red honey causes the fish to develop a taste for meat. Blue honey causes the fish to turn invisible. Green honey causes the fish to become money hungry. Yellow honey causes the fish to fire bees at the nearest people. Divine popcorn, a special food that appears rarely. If offered to the fish, the fish turns golden and blesses the adventurers with an orb and good fortune. Almost strong enough to cancel Waddle's curse, 50 DP. The trophy of the Fishtion. If one adventurer has any item won from a fraction inside the Fishtion, the fish of this island enchants it, 40 DP. The Stink of Vengeance. If on any threat level other than base, this fish's pond becomes a deep tunnel that transforms this fish into a megatar fish, 50 DP. Delta watched as the mushrooms popped out of the soil, followed by lush berry bushes that brought life to the island, along with dripping hives of honey with a distinct lack of bees. Hidden between some rocks is a bowl filled with troll soup, curdling the manna that came near it. The fish in the pond looked hungrily at all the offerings, but they were formed well outside of its reach. Delta felt a little sad, so she built a secret little food dispenser at the bottom of the pond that would give it some snacks with no effects to get it through the hunger pangs. The fish wriggled and looked to be dying in an effort to convince Delta to hand over some honey or maybe some leftovers from Ferris' kitchen. It was cute and pathetic, but Delta knew that it was only faking it for the attention and food. I made you. I know you're acting, Delta said, her hands reaching for berries despite her words. Somehow, the fish's eyes began to shimmer and sparkle like a little puppy dog, and Delta's steel resolve began to corrode. That's when Nu dumped the troll soup into the pond without any hesitation. Over the screams and the sounds of screens being slapped, Delta considered Fish Island a success. End of chapter. Chapter 196. The Argus Story. That dream came again. It had dulled over the years, but always willing to rise when his guard was down. It always started with a hand clamping on his child's self's shoulder. It's okay. You're going to see your home grow like never before, the kind voice promised. The image seemed to almost melt away before him. The green trees and healthy earth becoming rotted and wrong. Life blended together in horrible amalgamations, while the very air boiled. A friendly hand still gripped his shoulder. Gateline looked up at the blank eyes of Ripdoy. You're going to grow like never before. Then the hand began to melt into his skin, bringing them closer as one being before Kayleen shot away from his nap 
in the barracks cots. In a flash, he brought forth the core weapon, a silver blade instantly dulling his panic and fear until it cooled to a controllable determination. The tool he had was a key to putting dungeons in their place, but the lesser-known effect was that it halved your emotions when it was active. A handy tool when you were 40 floors deep in a dungeon watching your men get massacred by monsters or devious traps. It kept you grounded. He climbed out of the cart, putting the core weapon away for now, as he was awake. Such night terrors had become rarer, but he had a feeling that they would never truly go away until he made certain wrongs into rights. He scowled at a mirror as he tried to sum up the results of trying to get his patch back. Yetina didn't sleep, she barely ate, and she had the social graces of a scorpion that adopted field mice. It was impossible to get close to her. It was becoming impossible for him to do it, but he wasn't close to giving up. A knock sounded and Kayleen called for them to come in, revealing the suspicious face of Yutina's little apprentice, Lim. Can I help you, sir? He said. The title said with clear distaste. Kayleen had such an urge to admonish him, but was simply too tired to care right now. Technically, they were the sort of the same rank, but he didn't focus on that other than to indicate for Lim to join him at the table. Now stand, he said. Kayleen nodded as he went to his private specialty sealed lockbox. It would have been a good hiding place for his key, but he couldn't watch the lockbox all day and night like he could his badge. Like he once could. He returned to the table with a simple book that opened using a special protective spell and a drop of his blood. Let me tell you why I think you should help me and help your commander for your own benefit, he said simply, and Lim scoffed, looking ready to turn and leave that very minute. Kayline placed three photos down on the table, taken at great expense with technology that was still being developed too slowly to be used commercially. Lim gave them a brief look, already dismissing them when he paused and then looked back at them again. Kayline didn't say anything, just letting the pictures speak for themselves. Who is that? Lim asked slowly, turning so he was fully facing Kayline. Director Riptoy, in all three, he said, and Lim picked up one of the pictures. That can't, no. That isn't right, Lim said as he gestured to the picture down of Rip Boy smiling and the opening of official Fairplay HQ, surrounded by people clapping and beaming faces. I have no reason to lie about this, nor did I expect to have to show you this. The second picture was taken over 30 years ago. Rip Doy's is a little heavier. A little heavier, a little grayer. Kayleen pressed on, sliding it closer to Lum. The picture showed Riptoy in a secluded resort place, looking like he was taking time off with some close people. He was clearly past his prime, but not what one would dare to call to his face old. Riptoy looked tired, but happy. These have to be fake, Lim accused, and Kayline ignored the stupid idea. He would waste a small fortune on making pictures to convince them the audacity. The last was taken about five years ago, at the 50th anniversary of Fairplay HQ being opened. It had just finished its renovations and manor piping. It was a big event, Kayleen continued, looking down at the very much old Riptoy, who looked grumpy and sour like a war commander. It was obvious he was close circle, had shrunk again, and Lim swallowed hard. I don't, he hesitated, and looked at all three pictures. There was a knock, and Kayleen swooped up the pictures, pushing them back into his book. The next moment, Gentle entered with a letter. Lim, Commander, Yatina wants us to go to the sewer. Gear up, he said excitedly. Lim nodded, still looking harrowed. Lim gave Kayline one last strange look and quickly left with Gentle. Once the door was closed, Kayline looked at the pictures himself. 
The first of the opening of Fair Play, where Riptoy held the shy hands of a young boy. The next one, where he tossed a ball of sorts to the same boy. And in the last one, where the same boy stood alert behind Riptoy. Argus Gentle was as old as Fair Play itself. Older, perhaps. And it was the thing that haunted Kayleen's nightmares when Riptoy was too busy. If it was gentle and not something else, the boy acted blissfully unaware that he was close to 70 years old. A dozen movements that would be impossible to fake every second of every day. Gentle was a child in mind, but clearly not a body. Director Riptoy was hiding some very old skeletons in his closet, and one of the bone piles murdered his family. Dayline would burn the boy, the company, this town, and so much more to bring that man's sins to light. Then they would all burn together. His stomach began to gurgle, and he grimaced. I didn't say anything aloud about his backwater hov. He yelled, then began to gag. Seconds later, a detailed swan made of south red cheese landed on the table, and Kayline sank into the ground. He hated cheese so much, especially the kind that had pointy bits carved on them. Argus! Argus blinked as Lim hesitated to follow him down the dark corridor to the main hall. Are you a demonic elder being who pretends to be a young child? He asked, and Argus stared at him. I, I, I can't even handle being a teenager, he said back with a flat tone. But you would tell me if you were 40, 50, maybe even 70 years old? Lim pressed. Yes, Lim, I will inform you when I find out that I should be collecting kingdom-wide elderly support money, he said, finding this amusing, then confusing. Why the questions? he asked, and Lim hesitated. I saw pictures of you when Fairplay opened 50 years ago, he blurted out, and Argus blinked once. I was there, he said easily as they walked. Oh, good, I was what? Lim stopped, dead in his tracks, boots making squeaky noises as he slid. Argus winced but tried to put on a smile. I'm not well, I, I mean, I'm sort of sick in the incurable bloodline way. I've been since my stepfather found me. I should be dead, but Dad has this amazing friend who built him a ceramic chronostasis lockbox and I would go to sleep in it until medical developments were made. It was extremely costly. Dad had to build this HQ over a massive manor line just to power it. I never liked the box. It was always more of a pot, Argus admitted quietly. I wake up and every time it's my birthday, so I would spend the weekend together or something before I get back to sleep, he explained. Oh, Blum muttered. I know. Apparently, my dad and his friend fell out because the trade was that the man would be able to study the Fair Play Maidens, but then they all sort of just vanished together. He was supposed to study me, but dad was against it. August mused as they found Yutina waiting in the hole. So, uh, you're not an elderly demonic being waiting for the right time to stab us all in the back and reveal your master plan and rule the world, Lim asked again. Lim, I'm a double watch duty tonight. I can't fit sleep into my schedule, let alone all that, Argus said, throwing his hands up. Elderly demonic beings don't come to this world due to the rampant music festivals. Hurts their ears, Yatina said without looking up. Lim perked up and they began chatting about demons and the power of loud music as they exited the Fairplay doors. For a long moment, Argus lingers to the back and down the dark hallway, his exasperation now a tight frown. Then he was gone into the light. Pharaoh put down a plate of golden eggs from the second floor's jungle, crispy bacon, while Dalton knew that it came from the cute little piggles. Pharaoh put it in a smiley face, so it was okay. Next time, it would be big juicy sausages and various vegetables popped together to make what looked like toast. Strangely, no one had ever bought bread, buns, or given wheat or flour to Dalton to get the basic food stuff down. 
The most ready things they made came from Farrah's creative ability to scare food into looking like other food. I can't wait to pretend to eat this, Delta exclaimed as a cup of tea was added to the selection. She poked a piece of cute bacon and it broke apart into bacon-flavored moats, which she passed her face through a few times, getting the scent of bacon. Did she make it herself? Delta would make food she could eat, but anything made by others, it was a work in progress. She had continued to work on an avatar in secret, but the results were nightmarish. Mushrooms just kept creeping into the process somewhere, and it was disarming to say the least. New, how's the updates? She asked around the cloud of tea. Her blue screen unfolded much like a newspaper. Five more groups reached Fran. Only two got through. None beat Wyam. One was left crying, curled up like a ball in the corner after Wyam recited things she would do to him. One got lost in the honey pools, and one had a cathartic session at the hot springs and decided to quit being an adventurer to become a dentist. Delta blinked. What did Wyan even say? She asked, in both dismay and slight admiration. Something about paper cuts, finger webs, and slits, New said airily. And here I thought she was going to go more mentally offensive than torture, Delta said with a shake of her head as she enjoyed some eggs. She did. She just went into very graphic detail, New promised. Wyam's existence is graphic, Delta countered. I appreciate her creativity, New said, and carried on to the next section. Rudy left a message saying that a new group had come into town. She wrote it on a napkin and tossed it down the stairs. She said that they're either excitedly wrong or extremely strong. It was hard to decipher the message around her lunch stains, New went on. I think people just stating things and refusing to admit they're wrong would hurt me more than being thrashed, Delta said slowly as she put the plate down and stared at the ground. The horror, the very idea of experiencing such a character. I cry for you, Delta eyed the blue screen. I was never wrong. I just had misconceptions in the panic attacks, she said succinctly. Speaking of panic attacks, your dragon is ready and Hero said it's taking up a lot of space. You might want to do something about it, Nu said, reading a message Delta couldn't see. Nu, where on earth am I supposed to put a Death Star dragon? She demanded, then froze. Well, tactfully, it would be... Delta stood up. Delta! I know that look. I have an idea, she mumbled and moved. In no time at all, she appeared on the fourth floor. She looked around and found her target. Her features, she cried with a wide smile. The little snake eyed her with sleepy eyes as it emerged from the subterranean cave underwater. She held it and focused very hard on what she wanted. Morning, critters are not monsters or nor traps of the dungeon. Messing with their base blueprint. The sort of default warning popped up with over 600 pages of conditions and issues known to appear. Skip, she announced, and there was a new screen with 20 suggestions on what else to do with the dragon. Skip, she said brightly. There were now two pages of dire warnings and suggestions. Skip, Delta said, becoming a little impatient. The box was reduced to a single choice. Do you accept the consequences of your own actions in the event of dire outcomes and unpredictable disasters? Remind me later in 30 days, she said, and flicked the box away to reveal her idea. Raid Boss Creation Ophiuchus, the Death Star Constellation Can be brought forth by one or more of the following conditions. If a group has killed every being, more than 98% of monsters of the dungeon up to the fourth floor. If a threat level 5 or above is activated. If the number of people on the floor rises above 30. If at least 12 people of different star signs enter the floor at the same time. If someone enters the dungeon while Manu is in retrograde at the same time their birth star is in the fifth house. If someone collects all 12 orbs, Ophius just becomes a life star constellation that has minor but powerful wish-granting ability. 
Well, active, the fourth floor expands to twice the size, and Ophish just covers the sky with massive serpentine body. His abilities include suck, condense, comet, and unstoppable fortune of ill omens. Its powerful black hole ability can trap and eject beings into the world, making this one of the few beings able to eject someone from your reality and reinsert your own with style. The comet it can summon down bears one of the twelve star signs. Each will explode in a different manner. Some will explode with force, others with soul-shaking effects, and one with confetti. The confetti comet still hits with enough force to crush powerful defenses. The condensed ability allows Ophius just to create gravity well in front of it, eco-friendly in its ability to crush trash into a small portable state or a solid orb the size of a baseball, but with the mass of a horse. Unstoppable fortune of ill omens will cause all in the area to be cursed for the next year of their life. These curses will cover a wide range of effects, including always stubbing one's toe, losing a pen at the worst time, finding worthless currency, winning the lowest possible prize in any competition, swallowing one's drink down the wrong way in an average time frame, being three minutes late to everything and other omens. They can only be broken by the most powerful of religious rituals or moderately powerful gods. Ophiuchus is a servant of Waddles the Duck. If someone is under Waddles' curse and comes to this fight, they will have their chances of winning reduced to 50%. Note, this does not increase the chances of winning if below 50%. Waddles does not hand out participation trophies. No, what is luck in a dungeon terms? She asked curiously, never having really thought about it before. Technically, all luck is doing the opposite. Making someone lucky or unlucky is actually the process of inserting stricter limits over the random elements that will affect them. Good luck will actively cause certain things to be repelled or attracted. Money or lovers is a common one. Bad luck directly pushes someone into negative experiences with subtle influence. Dalton mulled this over for a moment. So there's no chaos involved, she asked. Sort of. Luck magic only inserts control over if good or bad things happen. Those exact things are still left up to chance, No explained. So all luck magic is chaos, but really ordered, Delta tried to grasp. Ah, oh, or look orderly, but just a series of messy coincidences that fall into a pattern that looks semi-reasonable, New countered. Who even designed this? Delta asked, rubbing her head as she hit create. She would have her dangerous sky noodle. Brother continued to fish as he relaxed. His new whale friend was fast asleep. His nose itched, and he followed the sensation to some of his older magics, notably the Luck series. It was on the fritz again due to people overindulging in luck charms, rituals, practices, and wistful thinking. That stuff stopped working when the population of people got too large and the magic was running constantly. Brother shook his head. Luck, that stuff will kill you, he told the whale with a somber tone as the magic rock sparked and cracked. It was good luck that they found someone to make their friend. It was bad luck that they were so inept at making gods they drove him insane. It was good luck that they managed to take his eyes. It was bad luck the god blindly lurched into the abyss and found home. It was good luck the only souls it took were in a little metal box on wheels. It was bad luck that it learned that it could take more. Luck, luck, luck. Terrible stuff. Brother would stick to marine life that could shoot light beams and horses with combat horns. End of chapter. Chapter 197, A Slippery Slope Mayim felt a bark creak in the mirror dimension. Her other body was currently breaking apart due to the force brought upon it. She almost casually watched as a massive plated armor man pulled back his warhammer for one more slam, but honestly, 
Wyam didn't need much more than a small gentle caress to topple. But Wyam had always preferred the other to finish with sweat and effort. Is it over? Ferretry looking archer at the back called, already readying their thousandth arrow. Spatial quivers were a lot like spatial bags, a lie in the fact that they were not big in the inside, but those portals to some bank service. Not that the little archer would admit it, Wyam suspected. They all enjoyed looking smug as they pulled out an arrow for any event or foe. Wyam suspected inadequacy in other parts of their life, mostly their love life. All right, she was supposed to be dying. Curse you, soft skins, Wyam held as she fell back slowly, with the force of an ancient oak being toppled. Curse you out-of-season shoes, your awkward group love pentagon of unspoken crushes, she wailed. Pent, there's six of us, the mage who wielded her air like a sword. No one likes you, Wyam continued in the same wail. We do, the woman used guns of all things. The mage turned to her with a smile, which made her backpedal fast. As friends, she added hastily. Wyam could see new drooling from the prime dungeon, wanting to study the woman's rifles hooked up to different elemental crystals, all plugged into Wyvern's hearts of all things. Wyam could appreciate looking good and using it to kill others. Silence, tree, go quietly into the night, the healer of the group said. He didn't use magic, but had three different belts of pre-made potions and ingredients on hand to make more on the fly. Half his bags were filled with honey or flowers from the secret garden. They were lucky they were in a mirror dimension, or Luna would have had their heads and pikes. Now go quietly as you did in the cave behind the waterfall with the gunsmith. Wyme was nearly 90 degrees to her topple now, barely hanging on by the bark. <sighs> How did you even hear us? The gun user demanded. I paid the pygmy mushrooms for Gaza. Wyam finally landed with a massive crash, her focus fading from the smurrow version. You were a tough lass, but not a bad one, the warhammer user said to Wyam. Wyam didn't like him. He had the stench of landing the final blow on Sir Fran. It cast an instant debuff that shrunk his likability by 90% and shrunk other things. The debuff was still in the waiting to be approved stack for Delta, but Wyam was optimistic for its chances. Sir Fran went easy on you, she said coldly. Aye, the man mused, rubbing his dirty beard. If my knight deemed you worthy, you would have seen true power, Wyam huffed, one of her eyes going dark and the energy used to maintain her rapidly depleted. So it only gets easier from here, the last member of the group asked. Wyam eyed them and tried to be cordial. He hadn't really done anything, but Wyam was of life, passion and growth, cough, alcohol, cough and nature. The necromancer was an other end of existence. It was a man, not many good ones around. He was pale and skinny, a nerd. He was also a necromancer, the least offensive thing about him, honestly. He didn't use human skeletons, but a lot of animals, dogs, cats, and even some snakes. With one look, Wyam saw they were indeed possessed beings, having the original spirit instead of being mindless animated servants. And weirder was that the animals liked their master. Easier, Wyam laughed thickly. You've beaten the knight and now the lady, but you are still a few inches too short for all the king, Wyam warned. They'd been entertaining, so a little hint was what they deserved, other than the loot that she might drop. Wyam was leaning towards the woodstaff of the bird, hidden a lovely figurehead. Wyam turned to the archer, the alchemist, and the gunsmith. She eyed the taken honey, the plundered stingers, and the shards of a pot, and a few bottles lifted without Ferris' permission. They had other small crimes to their name since arriving, but Wyam could suspect a lot of the small crimes rapidly outshone one large one. 
She suspected that he would be the king of dark justice, but Jerrigan would be no gracious host to them. Wyam closed her eyes with a smile. Yes, she would have to ask Jerrigan in the prime to share his vision. She would enjoy the stream of violence. Uh, uh, what was that? The gunsmith said with a frown as she picked up one of the three items that dropped. The dungeon had been weird with treasure, but each item they found was undeniably powerful. The silk glove she found after they took down the powerful Spider Queen was both beautiful and functional, letting her grip the handles of her gun recoil so much better than her leather ones. The gunsmith definitely preferred them over the web veil and beige got. He wasn't hideous, but he had an unfortunate case of acne in his youth that he tried to cure with troll solution. The result was regenerating pimples for the rest of his life. But he more than made up with it by being smart as a whip and able to cut steel with the air and some finger gestures. The pig knight, Sir Fran, had even dropped a new hammer for their warrior, the pig cloak of blending for the archer. The cloak smelled like fried food, but it made the archer very hard to spot in the mud. The tree, the wyam, the undeniable beauty who will never have a chance with, as she introduced herself, had dropped three items. One was a sort of pistol that gunsmith would have used, covered in lush vines and made out of wood. When she checked its chamber, the thing was powered by a green crystal that reeked of wet earth booze. On the side of the gun, the name Lady Wood was carved into the barrel. She fired it experimentally, finding a massive problem. The gun was hard to handle. Even with the new gloves, it fired a wicked thorn instead of a bullet. That wasn't the problem. Your gun sounds in pain when you fire it. The mage frowned in concern, trying to see the issue as the gunsmith howled it at arm's length in horror. Blood, that isn't pain. The warrior grinned at the alchemist who flushed. The next item was a single arrow that had a green shaft and a deep amber arrowhead. The archer took it, trying it out. Only one, he frowned as he fired it. The arrow sailed normally enough in the air. Looks good, if nothing else, the warrior said, and the archer watched him speaking, focusing mostly on the man's mouth. The gunsmith didn't go for lots of muscle, but the gunsmith could see the appeal. A second later, the arrow that was buried in the earth pulled itself out and flew towards the warrior's face. Some sort of tracker, the archer said, and used it again, focusing hard. The arrow failed to move when it was fired again. Frowning, the archer slowly looked through the warrior, and then the arrow began to tremble in the earth. He looked at the gunsmith, and the arrow went inert. Oh look, you've got drake arrows, beast arrows, goblin arrows, fire arrows, and now love arrows, the alchemist said with delight. The archer glared at the alchemist, and to all their surprise, the arrow wobbled just a little. Shut up, the archer warned the arrow, and stuffed it away with a flush. We can only hunt hot bounties and monsters now. Our archer's needs must be accommodated, the necromancer said pleasantly. I hate this place, the archer groaned, and they turned to the final item. It was a rock. If the thing hadn't appeared in a flash of light, it would have just been a rock. Shame we don't have that druid we met a while back. He always was like looking for smooth rocks, the mage said regretfully as he picked it up. It's not magical beyond being from a dungeon, he reported. May I? The necromancer asked, and he turned the thing over before he focused and cracked it in half with some magic. In the core of the rock was a strange set of brown patterns ringed in the stone's protective rock. At all, could be worth something, the warrior pointed out as they gathered around. Not an awe, the necromancer reported, and his hands glowed green as the patterns became infused. Slowly, the complete skeleton of a small bird emerged. It looked like a normal creature until its mouth formed something akin to dragon fangs. 
What is that? The archer asked as the thing clicked. It says, I'm a fossil, a super mineral infused rock with the shape of life. You, sorry, uh, I, I won't be translating that, the necromancer said to the skeleton bird with a small smile. Why does it have teeth? The gunsmith asked. Maybe it's a swan-like being, the alchemist guessed. Uh, what does it do? The mage asked and poked it. The bird promptly bit the finger and the mage squealed and clamped on harder. By people, I presume, the necromancer said calmly. A moaning gun, a love-seeking arrow, and a biting rock. This is definitely some of the weirder loot that we've ever gotten, the warrior said brightly, but his eyes were trading back the way they came. You want to find that goblin at full power? The archer guessed. The warrior smiled and merely began walking to the stairs to the third floor. This was the deepest that most people ever got sober. They were going to be rich, not in coin or treasure, but information and that sort of thing could be traded for some very rare privileges. It's a shame that this place is light on the more lasting treasures. I wouldn't mind a few books or art to be gained, the mage told the alchemist who shrugged. I'll take rare ingredients, he grinned. I'll take a challenge, the warrior called back, urging them on. I just want a gun that doesn't moan when I jostle it, the gunsmith muttered. She had wrapped the thing up in one of the socks, and it was still audible. It was like it was being louder because she tried to gag it. What a weird weapon. The air changed from hot, humid jungle to cold, contained breeze of castle corridors. The mage felt his neck prickle, as if they were stepping into some place ancient, which was not normal for a dungeon that only had four floors. Many dungeons could try to emulate the concepts of old, wild, dark, and other themes, but one would gradually see past it. There were a dozen things that a dungeon just didn't account for when making their floors that could ruin the illusion eventually. But not this floor. It was almost like the dungeon had found some hollowed-out husk of an ancient castle this far below the ground and moved in. It was possible, but he didn't announce it since he didn't have any evidence. Honestly, nothing about this dungeon was normal. In an hour, maybe two, the mage would have to announce that he would have to go head back to the entrance, mainly because the manor was so thick it was giving him mana poisoning. He hadn't had mana poisoning since he got stuck on the 36th floor of another dungeon for three days. Any trouble? The warrior asked seriously to him, and the mage had to blink for a second to refocus. He was getting sloppy. He held out his sword hand and dispersed the air sword into thousands of smaller air currents that had roamed all over the floor and walls around him. To him, they were like a gossamer string that he could feel with. It took hours of practice for him to sort out the feedback, but eventually, he could sniff out holes and indents where traps could be. It was a trick that let him predict that strange cyborg near the entrance, but it still stole one of the archer's arrows. The trick was not to be too forceful, or he might activate a trap with careless fumbling. He had done that once in another dungeon. That fumble had set off a cascade of boiling water to fill the room. The mage had felt shame about that, despite his team saying that it was no such thing as a perfect run. Clear, but the air is weird, he announced. Weird like the alchemist's concoctions, or weird like smells like terrible monsters about to eat us, the archer asked, getting an annoyed look from the alchemist. The mage smiled. If they were outside, he would use their names and tease the archer about the arrow, but they were in a group, so proper mental defenses, like using code names and other business-like demeanors, helped them handle some of the nastier tricks a dungeon could pull. The ruby dungeon had ensured that they didn't let their minds stray to family or friends, the twin dungeon showed them how it would feel to murder each other in real time with coffees. The recently discovered snake dragon taught them that it didn't matter if a person in danger was their lover or someone that they were upset with outside. The team was the team 
until it was disbanded. The line between rookies and experienced was not in their destructive power, but in the way they acted in a dungeon. Casual names and lax approach worked on a dungeon falls 1 to 10, and a moderate close-knit group who let arguments and personality clashes affect their work might survive floors 11 through 20. They normally didn't survive beyond that due to the team members' losses, making many groups break and fall apart. Those who could be themselves on any floor, those who were monsters, the knights, and the legends. Thick with fumes, nothing poisonous, or we'd all be dead by now, the mage promised. Smells familiar, he added, confused. The scent was tingling something in his memory, but nothing came forth. It was almost like he was too traumatized to get that memory back. They approached a massive set of double doors, where two gargoyle statues seemed to be carved out of the rock wall on either side. They stopped as both statues started cracking and shaking off excess flakes of rock and dust. Visitors, sober ones, one of the gargoyles mused with a thick rounded snout and jaw. He looked much bigger than the other one, which had a more draconian inspiration in his making. They got past Wyam. We might have to be serious, the dragon one pointed out. Do you guys do riddles, Gunsmith called. Her gun readied, but no one was rushing as it let the alchemist mix bottles discreetly behind his back. The crafty man had each of his bottles marked with different raised symbols so that he didn't need to see as much as feel to use them. Riddles? Ah, oh, that's more of Doc's thing, the dragon one admitted. Not riddles. You just can't understand science jargon, the bull one retorted. The dragon one went to say something, then clicked his massive claws, as if coming up with an idea. I've got a riddle. Guess my name, he declared. The group stared at him. He looked like a dragon, but that was too obvious. That's not really a fair riddle, the necromancer pointed out, and the gargoyle deflated like a punctured his fun with a sharp needle. You can just pass if you want. But if you want a riddle, how about this then? The Buddhist one grinned as he leaned down off his perch. What is a question you can never answer if it's true? The bull asked, and the dragon one looked surprised. Where'd you learn that? He asked curiously. A book. There is this small rectangular thing with paper. The other retorted. Ha ha. Do I look fat in this, partner? The alchemist offered first. The gunsmith eyed him. You better answer with an emphatic no, she warned. Do I exist? The warrior announced. The mage thought that was a good one. The gargoyles just looked at them, so he supposed that wasn't the answer. Are you dead? The necromancer said, and the mage thought that that was both clever and fitting for his teammate. But they could answer if the necromancer wanted them to. Still, no response from the watching monsters. Are you asleep? The archer answered slyly. Usually they say yes if you're the one asking in bed. The alchemist muttered, causing the gunsmith to shoot him a withering look. Or your time ran out an hour ago. Get out, the warrior added. The mage thought about it and then decided to answer. Do you hate yourself? He said, and the rest looked at him in surprise. He flushed and pulled his pretty spider veil down over his face. There was a long pause. Well, the dragon gargoyle asked the other. Oh, I don't know the answer. All the answers were in the back and I fell asleep on page two, the bull admitted. How can you ask a riddle that you don't know the answer to? The archer demanded. Yeah, it was riddles like those that put me to sleep. Glad you got a riddle of your own too, the bull one beamed at them. The only riddle they have is riddled with a headache. Let them pass, the dragon one announced. The mage was sure they're just confused as the rest of his group. Oh, and my name is Dragon. You'd never have gotten it, the draconian gargoyle yelled as they moved through the doors, watching their backs for an ambush. 
Before he could respond, the mage felt a strange pulsing of energy, and he turned to see the most powerful blinding magic he had ever seen over something that looked like a rounded map. Why was the map rounded on the stand? The world was clearly flat. The four protective pillars projecting the magic were made of such tough material that not even the strongest hammer swing of the warrior or the most acidic solution of the alchemist could affect them. Only one reason someone guards something, the gunsmith said, and looked at the doors leading left, right, and forward speculatively. Oddly, the traumatizing smell came from the right door, and a little from the door leading forward. The other door didn't smell of anything the winds could carry except very new books. The winds of fate say this, he said quickly, and headed to that door. Uh, the winds of fate, the necromancer asked dubiously as he patted his new bird. Like how death's gentle hand guided you to the pet's door, the mage said, and the necromancer was suddenly distracted by tapestry. The mage couldn't wait to lift some books. Surely, no one would mind. In a dark throne room, a small pudgy form rippled as it expanded slightly once more. The skull it wore was now properly fitting, and the small arms flexed. King Jellican exhaled, breathing out green fire and short bursts. Poi, he rumbled. Oh, I think a cleaver would be dashing, the nearby Moharia said as she looked over the dozens of weapons she got from the demon blacksmith. The king thought about it and then reached down for another weapon, a firm leather shoe with an open back to allow one comfortable to slip into. That's not a weapon, that's just something for guests to wear when they're in the library but have boots on. Mahari began, but Jigligan focused, causing runes of power to appear on the surface of his weapon. The runes were an inverted delta symbol. It invoked displeasure, uncomfortable attention and disapproval. Perfect for his weapon. These intruders did not yet deserve the sword of arrogance to fall upon. They deserved the slipper of punishment to slip up on. End of story. I would just quickly like to thank the T5 peeps. Dragon Soup, Cold War Boomer Waffen, Severin Cerberus, Red Panda 121, Leslie 517, Bushmaster 177, Casper Arnholtz, Cam Maxwell, Sans the Skeleton, Lightjock, Dragzoon WRE, and Lord Azrakal. Thank you very much.